You may be seated. Well, please turn your Bible to Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4, we'll be looking at this chapter, which is 1 through 24 in its entirety this morning. Just as a, while you're turning there as an opening, I, I was recalling, I was thinking about kind of the opening of this introduction to this sermon, and it's the thought I want to have in our minds. I was reminded of um, the 49ers. They had a motto that they pumped themselves up with before and after the games in 2011 and 2012 when they had the best coach of all time, Jim Harbaugh, and they let go to everyone's uh, anger, every true 49er fan. Anyways, he shouted, who's got it better than us? He shouted it about you know, anywhere from one to three times, and then the entire team would respond, nobody. Who's got it better than us? Nobody. And it was a perspective thing, right? You could, you could talk about all the different positions on the field and say, well, they've got a better third wide receiver than our third wide receiver, or they've got a better, you know, front line than us. You could talk about that, but, but he wanted them to have a big picture outlook upon going into the, the games, that, that nobody has trained harder, nobody is more prepared for this game than us. And I think in some ways that relates here because we, we see once again, look at verse 1 of chapter 4, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Again, the cycle is continuing to repeat. We're not even halfway through the book. We've seen this cycle repeat three times now. Again, they've fallen in. After 80 years of rest, they go right back into a time of idolatry, a time of evil. Why did they do it? How gives us a hint again at that. And they... They failed to remember how good they had it. Psalm 73 says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They looked out at the nations around them. They said, they're not being judged. They're prospering. They're getting everything they want. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Remember, we talked about that last week. Fat means healthy here. They're well-fed. They're well-nourished. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is, in, is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice loftily. They threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. They see their arrogant walk through life, ignoring the creator, turning to idols, making gods for themselves, and the people of God say, if they're getting away with it, why can't we? How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? That's what the people of God begin to say. They begin to question 
even God's existence. But notice where Asaph, the, the author of this psalm, notice where he ends. Because remember, he's, he acknowledged in the beginning he almost stumbled himself. His feet almost stumbled as he saw his own people turning away from the Lord. But verse 23 says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's the difference between the Israelites in the time of the judges and Asaph or anyone who repents, who believes, who they see and acknowledge the injustice around them but they recognize the goodness of God. They come back to his goodness and they say, you're the one that's been with me. You're the one holding my hand. You're the one causing me to persevere. So I'll continue to trust in you. So we've seen in chapter one, the political failure of Israel. We've seen the spiritual failure in chapter two. And then in chapter three, we saw the deliverance of God, the gracious deliverance of God. And yet... Once again, you take away Ehud, you take away the judge, and what are you left with? A return to idolatry. The pattern repeats itself because the people had forgotten all that the Lord delivered them from. That was the language of verse 7. And the people of Israel, in chapter 3, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. So they had forgotten the presence of God. They forgot the power of God, the guidance and counsel of God in their lives. And they even forgot the glory that awaited them after death that God had promised to them. So what about you this morning? Have you forgotten the goodness of the Lord? Text in this passage. So let's look to him for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we need your help. We need your assistance as we open your word, as we look to you. We all come from different places in life. We come with different needs, different burdens on our heart. But all of us, regardless of our circumstances, need to be reminded of your goodness. And it might be surprising that it would come from a text like this. But may you do that work in our hearts. May you open our eyes to see this truth. May you give us ears to hear. Soften our hearts that we might respond in obedience. That we would not be hearers only, but doers of your word. to do a work that only you can do. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me, Judges chapter 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. 
Now Deborah, the prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Was not the Lord the God of Israel, has not the Lord the God of Israel commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river of Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zaananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harasheth Agoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Agoyim, And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went in her tent, and there lay Sisera dead, with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, just to note, the next chapter is a song of Deborah and Barak, and it will repeat a lot of what we see in chapter 4. 
in, in the form of poetry. And so we're not going to cover every aspect, every detail here in chapter 4 this morning, but we'll look back at some of that next week. And we'll look ahead a little bit to understand something of what's taking place in chapter 4. Um, so just be aware, we've got two weeks on this topic here, but if you, there is anything that I've left out that confuses you, please feel free to talk to me afterwards. But we see once again that opening cycle beginning itself. The people have done evil in the sight of the Lord, and so he sells them into slavery to the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, and so they cry out from their enslavement. They cry out for deliverance. And this is where we get a bit of a unique change in that cycle because instead of it saying that the Lord raises up a judge, it says that Deborah is there. Deborah, a prophetess. It's emphasized that she is a prophet. The wife of Lapidoth was judging Israel at that time. So God has been using Deborah in this position to judge Israel, and she's the one who summons Barak to lead the military. And so the first thing we have to deal with is, is our understanding of Deborah and her role here as a prophet. Why isn't, the first question is, why isn't Deborah listed? When you get in future passages of Scripture, 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, we read this, but they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Asheroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. Barak is mentioned there instead of Deborah. You get again into Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, as it's discussing the, all the characters of faith. Who's mentioned there? And what more shall I say, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets. Again, Deborah's not mentioned, but Barak is mentioned. So it would seem that her judgeship, her judging, was primarily as a role of, of a prophet in the form of prophecy. Right? The people, in fact, as they were crying out, uh, to, they were probably crying out to her as the representative of God. They came to her as she was sitting under the palm, and they cried out asking for a word from the Lord to be delivered. So she's not one of the judges in the same sense as the other judges were. She doesn't have the same role, right? Every one of them leads the military, leads them into deliverance. Not Deborah, she calls someone else, Barak, who leads the military. And then Barak is the one in other passages who's listed alongside the judges. So she's not a judge in the same sense. She's primarily reflected here in this passage as a prophet. And I, and I say that because many point to Deborah as a key example of women in positions of religious authority. 
They say, but what about Deborah? Right? If you don't believe women can be pastors or elders in the church, what about Deborah? And there's no doubt that she had power. So should we conclude that women have every right to be in positions of church leadership now? Do they have right to the same positions of authority that men hold within the church? Well, first of all, I would say it's generally not a good practice to create a principle out of what is clearly an exception to the rule. Right? Deborah is an exception. She's unique in, in all of the book here. And her authority stemmed, I believe, primarily from her prophetic office because she was speaking the word of God. And it's not a problem for there to be prophetesses. There were, there were other female prophets in Scripture. God, God gave them words to speak, and they spoke them faithfully. So she doesn't, however, appear to have command over the military or any religious authorities. She's not commanding the Levites what to do. Probably the Levites are, have forsaken their duties anyways at this point. So Deborah may be the only faithful representative left speaking for God, but she is not taking their place. She's not replacing those offices. But I'd say at the same time, we can and should acknowledge the significance of Deborah's role here. Right? The, the Lord's hand was very clearly upon her to be used in a powerful way. Her faithful fulfillment of the prophetic office is what raised up Barak, what encouraged him to go and lead the military into victory and then to give them rest for 40 years. And she's, she's the first one who steps out, faithfully honoring the Lord. And God's kingdom purposes have always involved the service of faithful women. We should prize the service and the work of women. Right? And this church has benefited. We've got incredible women here who have served and who have who've done much of the work that we rejoice in, uh, that God has used them to train up your children, right? to, to bear one another's burdens, to be there for each other when you've had children, when you've been sick, to gather together, to laugh and to rejoice, and then to, to serve. And so we should be thankful for that work. And this is an example. This is a, a, a woman who should inspire all of us right, to serve the Lord. We shouldn't have a problem of appreciating Deborah's role. And yet, when we move on to the next character, Barak, there does seem to be a challenge scholars have. Commentators oftentimes raise challenges with Barak's faith. Right? They struggle to acknowledge anything good in Barak. Right? And it stems from this verse 8, his response to Deborah. Deborah gives him a promise. And he says, gives him the promise of victory. He says, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now again, before criticizing Barak, consider what we read in Hebrews 11.32. He was praised for his faith. He's acknowledged as an exemplary, as having exemplary faith. So we shouldn't, of all things, be critical of his faith. And yet that's what people challenge. They say, oh, he's full of doubt here. 
He's so full of weakness. But Barak's hesitation is entirely consistent with many of the call narratives you find in Scripture. Think about Moses. How did Moses respond when God called him out? Do we oftentimes chastise Moses as being hesitant, as being full of doubt? Well, in in the call initially, he was hesitant. But that's not how we remember him. Think about Gideon. We'll get to Gideon in a few weeks. Gideon responds with hesitancy. Even Saul, King Saul, begins his reign as the king with hesitancy. He says, Samuel comes to him and he says, why are you talking to me? Right? He doesn't feel worthy. Same with Jeremiah. Right? They all voiced uncertainty in accepting God's mission and, and will for their lives. They were uncertain. They were hesitant. They were humble. That's another way you could put it about their own abilities. Do you really think that after having a, a promise that there would be 10,000 men in his army that he thought, I just need one more person, a woman. I need you, Deborah, with me. As if Deborah were some fierce warrior that would really contribute to the army's victory. That's not it. He's, he's responding to her promise as a representative of God, as bringing a representative of God with him to call out the armies, to say, look, the prophet is behind this. This is the work of God. God is calling you to this. This isn't just me. He recognized her role as a prophet, and her presence would have encouraged the army, as well as represented God's favor, and possibly even the guidance of the Holy Spirit, because, again, in the cycle that we typically saw where the Spirit fills the judge, it doesn't say that here. Deborah seems to fill that role. She represents God's presence. She represents the Spirit's guidance and leading. And so, is Barak's faith perfect? Of course not. No. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that, that, that his faith was, was strong right from the start. It wasn't perfect. And in fact, Deborah does respond with a, a subtle rebuke here. It might, maybe not so subtle. Right? You're, you're not going to receive the glory for the victory, but a woman will. And so he allowed his eyes to focus maybe too much on the prophet instead of the word she had given. He believed, but there was a bit of unbelief, right? As we read in Mark 9, 24, I believe, help my unbelief. This is common to all of us. It's the kind of faith we see in Barak. Do we ever see perfect faith in anyone? Do you want to? Be declared as having perfect faith? Of course not. The only one who had perfect faith was Jesus Christ. And so we look to him, right, as the author and the finisher of our faith. Knowing that one day we will no longer wrestle with confusion and doubt. One day he'll he'll satisfy all the promises that our faith looks to. And so our experience is much like it was for Israel during the Exodus. They, as they're crossing the Red Sea, think about 
all the different characters, all the different individuals who are crossing through the Red Sea. They're, they're crossing on dry land after Moses. And you think, man, they must be excited. They must be rejoicing. But think, think about yourself going through that. With walls of water that are defying the laws of nature on either side of you, you could probably see great fish swimming around. And you know that at any moment, that could come crashing down on you. And you're not necessarily walking through with your head held high and confident, but you're kind of hunkering over. You're, you're sort of cowering, looking down, just, please, Lord, please, please, you know, constantly asking him to, make you, to, to bring you all the way through. That is our faith. That is what we are doing day by day. Timothy Keller said, it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. And that's what gives us hope, that even when we have those times of, of struggle to believe, or we're filled with doubt or uncertainties, that we have a Lord who is perfectly faithful for us. And he's the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. He, he's the one we look to. He's the one who saves us, not the strength of our faith that that waxes and wanes. It's strong and it's weak throughout our lives. Well, there's another female character and another person that's often criticized in this chapter. We come to the character Jael. And there's a, there's a foreshadowing of her in verse 9 when Deborah says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then again in verse 11, now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zaananim, which is near Kadesh. So who is Jael? Jael's the wife of Heber the Kenite. She's the woman that Deborah prophesied would receive the glory for this victory, or at least from uh, the, the vanquishing of Sisera, the killing of Sisera. Heber, however, let's, let's remind ourselves who the Kenites were. Back in chapter 1, verse 16, we read, And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad, and they went and settled with the people. So the Kenites were settled in the area, the region that was given to Judah. And now Heber, a Kenite, departs. In a sense, he's apostatizing from the people of God. And we see in chapter, chapter 4, verse 17, but Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. So Heber leaves Judah, goes into this region now that is neutral, and he lives there and he makes peace with the king who is oppressing the people of God. And from, that, from within that house is where God raises up someone to deliver his people, Jael. Right? God... God's providence is setting up the scene. 
And likewise, the use of an inferior weapon, we've seen that's common to judges. Jael's tent peg and hammer, not a likely use for a weapon. She would have been familiar with using them because they, it would have been her responsibility to set up the tent as they travel. And so she, she knew how to use a hammer and a tent peg, but not typically what you would use in battle. We saw Ehud's dagger, not necessarily um, surprising, but, but the fact that he made it himself was surprising. It was a short one, too, more like you know, it was a sword, but it was, we called it a dagger because it's short. It's 12 to 18 inches long. And he had it on his right thigh using his left hand. Anyways, you got Shamgar's ox goad. The verse devoted to that. In a few weeks, we'll see Gideon's torches and horns used in battle. That'll be a shocking victory. And then Samson's jawbone of a donkey used to kill the Philistines. So, again, what are we seeing here in all of these surprising and unlikely weapons? We see God's hand of providence. God is the one behind this. God is the one bringing victory. Now, is Jael deceitful? That's what people are, are struggle with Jael. She's, she's deceitful here. Of course she's deceitful. Why wouldn't she be deceitful? The one who's oppressing the people of God has come right into her lap, has fallen into her lap, and she can put an end to it. And the text does not pass any moral judgment upon her in the same way we see of Rahab's deceitfulness, right, when she houses the spies and lies about their presence in her house. What happens? The text praises Rahab for her cunning. Same thing here. In chapter 5, we'll look ahead there, and we'll, we'll look again at this next week, but chapter 5, verses 24 through 27, most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women, most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. They are praising her actions. There's no casting doubt upon her deceitfulness. Oh, she, she could have been more faithful to the Lord in her actions here. No, this is a perfect example of faithfulness. Jael's killing of Sisera reveals God's swift and exacting justice. Right, and so before condemning Jael's actions, we must consider the severity of Israel's physical oppression. And again, we see that more clearly in the song. Because had Sisera won the battle, he would have been at Jael's tent with far different purposes. And we find those purposes at the end of the song in verses 28 through 30. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera. This is an imagining, and, Deborah and Barak are imagining what Sisera's mother is thinking as he has been delayed in coming home. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer, 
Indeed, she answers herself, Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man, spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. What would he have been doing had he won? He would have been at Jael's tent, dividing the spoils and abusing her. Right? That's the, the language there. A womb or two for every man is a derogatory term for women. He's, he's talking about taking them captive, raping and pillaging. Right? These are the characters whom God was bringing judgment upon. You say, well, maybe if Jael had read Charles Sheldon's book in his steps, she would have paused and thought, what would Jesus do in this moment? And she wouldn't have been so deceptive and callous in murdering Sisera. But in fact, Jael shows us exactly what Jesus would do. Jesus puts an end to his enemies. And in his first coming, he put an end to our sin and death. In his second coming, he'll put an end to all who reject him. That's justice. And so let us not forget here the central character. Look at verse 7. And I will draw out Sisera. This is the word from Deborah, from God. Has not the Lord. I'm going to go back to verse 6 just so you hear that. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. I will do that work. That is God drawing Jabin, drawing Sisera's army out. Jabin's army with Sisera the commander, drawing them out and giving them into the hands of Barak's army. Verse 15. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. Again, the Lord is doing the work. God is the one who routed Sisera's army and also subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan. Verse 23, so that on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. So God gave the enemy into Barak's hands. God routed Sisera's army and subdued Jabin. God is the actor here. He is the central character, sovereignly orchestrating this victory for his people. The salvation of our God includes the crushing defeat of his and our enemies. So Deborah's prophecy, Barak's faith, Jael's ethics, all of it was a means of God doing a work of redemption, of redeeming his people, of rescuing them out of enslavement to idolatry. God has completed that work of del- deliverance through his son, Jesus Christ. Right? It's he who is our ultimate deliverer. He defeats our enemies. And we see a picture of this, a, a hopeful picture of this in Zephaniah. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. 
Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty God who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth for when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Why? Because he's eliminated your enemies. These are the, this is the hope we have. Instead of pouring out his wrath upon you, God rejoices over you. Instead of living in fear, we now walk by faith, strengthened by God's victory. Instead of hanging our heads in the shame of idolatry, we now lift up our hearts in praise to the one who has restored our joy. And so we we should be filled with great enthusiasm and passion as we respond to that work of deliverance and the victory that he accomplished in the defeat of his and our enemies. Nobody has it better than us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.